For those of you that opened up your songbooks and saw that particular song of invitation, Count Your Many Blessings, it might seem like a somewhat strange song of invitation, but the lesson will reveal why. I did ask for that song, but I will also say that um, I did not ask Dale for the one before the lesson, Can He Depend on You? But looking at the lyrics, that is a perfect lead-in to this morning's lesson. Last Sunday evening, I had the privilege of preaching a lesson entitled, Doing the Right Thing. That sermon last Sunday night, Doing the Right Thing, it detailed how God's children must always do the right thing. God's children must do the right thing according to God's word, even when it hurts, even when they have to stand alone. Even when they have to stand alone in their own families, social circles, or even church family, God's children are called on to do the right thing. They must do the right thing because that's what makes them faithful children of the living God. They must do the right thing because the Lord is righteous in all His ways and gracious in all His works. Psalm 145 and verse 17. Therefore, he who practices righteousness is righteous just as God is righteous. 1 John 3 and verse 7. And so, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you. Deuteronomy 6 verse 18. That is why God's children must do the right thing. Another reason... We see in Psalm 11, please turn there this morning, I'm going to spend a lot of time in the Psalms this morning. God's children must do the right thing because God is gracious in all his ways, because those who practice his righteousness are righteous as God is righteous. That's why we do what is good and right in his sight. But also, as David writes in Psalm chapter 11, or the 11th Psalm in verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. God is interested. He's checking to see if we will do the right thing. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. These in contrast to the righteous, this is what God terms as wickedness. However, look at the contrast as he concludes in verse 7. This is why we do the right thing. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, and his countenance beholds the upright. Don't you want to be in verse 7? That's why we do the right thing. The Apostle Peter would echo, if you're taking notes, these same sentiments in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And so, we know that we are to do the right thing, but let's be honest for a minute. Not that I haven't been so far, because I have. But let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes, even though we know to do the right thing, it is still hard, isn't it? It is still so hard, especially, especially... When we make every effort to work hard, be honest, pay our bills, obey the law, 
take personal responsibility, treat everybody fairly, give of ourselves constantly, and always seek to put others first and serve them incessantly and sacrificially. When we do that, what makes it so hard at times is because then we see others cheating on their taxes, not paying their bills, not obeying the law, refusing to repent, refusing to take responsibility for their own actions, always seeking to use and take advantage of other people, putting themselves above everyone and everything else and always appearing to think the world revolves around them and that other people were actually put here to serve them and elevate them instead of the other way around the way Christ said it had to be amongst his people Matthew chapter 20 verses 25 through 28 in Philippians 2 1 5 and yet it is that latter group of people that are not doing the right thing, that are doing all those other things, that are doing the wrong things, they always seem to be the folks that seem to slide through life the easiest, don't they? They just seem to get away with it. They bend the rules, they break the rules, they do all those things we talk about, they don't care about the rules, and they seem to be the ones who slide through life, get away with it. So much so, that at times... It is difficult, it's hard for those who are doing it right, for the righteous servants of God to not envy those people at times and look at them and say, what is the use in doing the right thing? Here I am over here breaking my back to do the right thing, but what's the use in doing the right thing when those who don't do the right thing seem to get it all, seem to have it all, and they do it without the struggles that I have. What's the point? Did you know that that is a question and emotion that many righteous servants of God, such as Job, David, Asaph, and many other righteous and God-fearing men and women throughout the ages have struggled mightily with themselves. If you've ever struggled with that, you're not alone. It's also a question that God answered for Asaph in a way he never forgot. We don't talk much about Asaph, but we're going to this morning. And just a little background, you can be looking in your Bibles to the book of 1 Chronicles, back up a few books from the Psalms to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. First off, let's familiarize ourselves a little with Asaph. Asaph was a Levite. He was a son of Berechiah of the family of Gershom, according to 1 Chronicles 6, 39 and 15, 17. He was eminent as a musician and he was appointed. He was appointed by David, no less, to preside over the sacred choral services. We would see this if we look in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Let us begin at verse 4. Speaks of David. And it says, and he, that is David, appointed some of the Levites to minister before the Ark of the Covenant to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. And look at verse 5, who he made the chief. Asaph the chief. Then there were some others. And it says, 
In verse 7, on that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. David appointed Asaph as the, as the lead choral director, the lead song director for this worship. And he delivered to Asaph, he said, here, here's a song I've written. Here's a, here's a psalm I've written. He delivered it to him and he said, this is what I want you to, to lead us in. And look at some of the words of this. We're not going to read the whole thing. Hopefully you will later this afternoon. But Asaph had this place of prominence. And so David passed him this song or this psalm that he had written. And it says, <clears throat> Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you chosen of Jacob, his chosen ones. And it goes on and on and on from there. You can read this actual psalm. It is Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15. If you want to look at that later, you can see that this, this very psalm or song that David wrote is included in the book of Psalms and Psalm 105. And so... My point in pointing this out to you is simply to show you the prominence of Asaph. The sons of Asaph are afterwards mentioned as musicians of the temple in 1 Chronicles 25, 1 and 2 and in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 14. And this office appears to have been made hereditary in the family according to 1 Chronicles 25, 1 and 2. Asaph was later celebrated as a prophet and a seer. 2 Chronicles 29.30 and Nehemiah 12.46. This is quite a guy. Okay? High up in the ranks, as it were. The title of 12 of the Psalms bear his name. Psalm 50 as well as Psalms 70 through 3 through 83. Although three of these should be attributed to the sons of Asaph rather than Asaph himself. Now, when you put all that together, everything I've just said, this is the picture of him you get. Asaph was a faithful, let's face it, if he wasn't, David wouldn't have appointed him. Asaph was a faithful dedicated and celebrated song leader. He was a song slash psalm writer himself. We have a dozen psalms that he wrote. He was a prophet. He was a seer. He was a man whom King David thought was worthy of appointing chief choral director for the worship. And Asaph apparently led his family in such a way such a faithful and dedicated way that his sons followed in his appointment and in his footsteps. And yet, even as such a faithful and dedicated servant of God, he struggled. He struggled with that same question I asked you at the beginning of this sermon. Is heavily involved in the worship, all these things we've gone through. This isn't some pagan, this isn't some lukewarm child of God. This is a guy that's, that's right in there serving under David, all of these things, setting the right example. And he still struggled when he saw how those who refused to do the right thing always seemed to not only get away with it, but to prosper in the process. And so Asaph put those struggles to music. 
He wrote a song about it, what we call a psalm, Psalm 73. Please turn this morning to Psalm 73. See what Asaph wrote. Brother James Burton Kaufman, under his heading in his commentary of Psalm 73, he entitles his commentary, The Problem of the Prosperity of the Wicked. And Brother Kaufman says... Where is the Christian who has not struggled with this same problem? Righteous people seem pressed down on every hand, often struggling for the very necessities of life, whereas openly arrogant and wicked unbelievers flaunt their godless lives, sometimes wallowing in wealth and luxury. This psalm addresses that very problem, and that's what I want you to understand. Let's take a good look at Psalm 73, or at least the beginning of it. Verse 1 says this, as soon as I get there. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. What I want you to understand about the very opening verse here is the conclusion is announced at the beginning. You know sometimes how when you watch these shows, crime dramas or something, the show will come on and it'll show this action scene and you have no idea what's going on because there's just this, there's this big <clears throat> event taking place and then it'll come on the bottom of the screen and it'll say three days earlier and it'll take you back in time and the show spends the rest of the time building up to what you already saw that's what's going on in this psalm his conclusion is stated first God is good truly God is good to such as are pure in heart Brother Kaufman says, God is not partial to the wicked, verse 1. However the opposite of this may appear at times to be true, it is never correct. God's goodness toward the righteous is by no means limited to the present time, but extends throughout eternity. Whatever advantage wickedness may appear to have in the present life is of no consequence whatsoever when considered in the light of the eternal rewards and punishments to be meted out on the day of judgment. Continuing with verses 2 and 3. Asaph has already told you his conclusion. Now he's going to take you back and say, that, that's, that's the truth, but let me tell you about what led up to this. Let me tell you about the awful mess that led up to this. He says, as for me, remember who he was. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Oh, what happened, Asaph? I mean... You're involved in God's worship. You're a faithful man. You, what, what do you mean your feet had almost slipped? And this is what he says. I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I said, man, I just, I envied them. They, 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 they never do things right, but they always come out on top. How does that work? Asaph recalls the temptation to envy the wicked which almost overtook him and he realizes when he says, my feet had almost slipped, he realizes how spiritually fatal it would have been for him to succumb to this temptation and not continue to do the right thing. Verses 4 and 5, he says of their prosperity, there's no pangs in their death. 
but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. He said, they just always seem to slide through and come out on top. It doesn't matter what they do. Verse 6, therefore, pride serves as their necklace. I want to stop right there. I want us to get a picture of verse 6. Pride serves as their necklace. You know, you see some of these athletes today, not basketball players, but you see some of these baseball players today and they're up to bat and occasionally they'll take a big swing and they'll have on some necklace that will pop out of their shirt. Some of you, well, let me give you a better example. I know I'm going to date myself here, but that's okay. You all know how old I am anyway, so it doesn't matter. How many of you remember the original Mr. T on the A-team, huh? Okay, now we're talking. All right. Remember that bunch of gold that was always around his neck? You remember that? Get a picture in your mind. You know that gold? What was the first thing you noticed about Mr. T when he showed up? You could see him coming a mile away. Guess why? I mean, yeah, he was also, you know, built pretty good. But the gold necklaces, man, they were just every... And that's the point here. That is the point here. When Asaph describes their pride. He says they wear their pride like a necklace. It's the first thing that you see dripping and hanging off of them when they come strolling up. Their pride, it's what they're all about. And you know, as he describes their pride as a necklace, I can't help but think of the New Testament Pharisees. The New Testament Pharisees were the Mr. T's of the first century when it came to wearing their, their pride as a necklace, as it were. Consider with me what I'm talking about. Let's think about the Pharisees for a minute. Do you remember the parable Jesus told in Luke 18, 9 through 14 about those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others? you remember that? Two men went up to the temple to pray, that whole story, okay? And Jesus, again, told that parable about those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. They wore their pride like a necklace. They thought they were better than everybody else. That's what that means. They looked down their noses at other people. That's what that means. This is a Pharisaic thing. You know, the Pharisees, again, they were so proud of themselves, they could barely stand it. Everybody had to know when the Pharisees did a good deed. Is that right? Sermon on the Mount. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? Man, when they go do a good deed, they got to let everybody know, like blowing a trumpet. Matthew 6, 1 through 16, and Matthew 23, 5 through 7. The Pharisees wore their pride like a necklace. You know... But don't expect the Pharisees, don't expect them who wear their pride like a necklace, don't expect them to do any of the behind the scenes, no glory, dirty work, or heavy lifting because they weren't going to do it. If it did not get the Pharisees noticed, they were not interested. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4. Not only that, but the Pharisees would take advantage of little old ladies. They'd kick them out of their houses. They'd take advantage of anybody and everybody they could while still trying to look good and religious. Matthew 23, 12-14. Hope you're taking these down because they're proving every word I'm saying. But you know, those Pharisees who wore their pride like a necklace, they may have looked good and religious to most folks on the outside, but Jesus Christ saw right through them. Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. Let me ask you a question. Can you imagine Mr. T, fully clad in all of his golden glory, can you imagine him trying to take that huge 
bundle of gold necklace and tuck it under his already too tight t-shirt, guess what? You're going to see right through that. You're still going to know the gold is there, right? Well, Jesus knew that these Pharisees who wore their pride like a necklace, he saw right through them. They tried to appear righteous, but he saw right through them. Matthew 23, 25 through 28. So continuing on here in Psalm 73, look at the second part of verse 6. Not only does their pride serve as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. They're always fighting with somebody. Always fighting with somebody. They're fighting with somebody because after all, they thought that they were all that there was, and they're always involved in a fight or struggle with somebody. They wore it like a garment. It was all over them. You could see it all the time. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples when they sought to drag all that sort of Pharisaic pride as a necklace garbage into their midst in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28? You remember the story in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28? James and John want the, want the place of prominence, so they get Mommy to ask if when Jesus comes into his kingdom, they could have the spots on his right and on his left. And when James and John pridefully sought to undermine the others and get those places of prominence immediately to the right and immediately to the left of the Lord Jesus so that they could rub elbows with him and show everybody how great and important they were in his kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, the secret to being great in the kingdom is not about rubbing elbows with me or anybody else. It's not about sitting on my right and my left. Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom? Here's how you do it. Whoever desires to become great among you, whoever wants that place of prominence, whoever wants that place of greatness in the king, Jesus said, whoever wants that place, let him be your servant. Places of prominence in our brotherhood is not the place behind the pulpit. And I'll say that because I'll pick on me first. Me being up here does not make me any better, more special, or anything else than the newest convert. It does not. If I have 18 letters after my name, that does not make me better than, than the person who's the youngest Christian. I'll pick on Landon because he's 10 years old, but he's Christian. Doesn't make me any better than him, even if I got alphabet soup after my name. You know what makes one great in the kingdom? Whoever desires to be great among you, Jesus said, let him be your servant. Let him be your servant. You want to be really great in the kingdom? Here's how it's done. Do the dirty work. Get down on your knees and do the everyday, low-profile, behind-the-scenes, no-glory work that nobody else wants to do. Isn't that what Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet? Those guys all walked in there. There was nobody to wash their feet. Jesus gets up and goes over, gets the water, takes off his outer robe, and Jesus Christ gets down on his hands and knees and serves Judas, of all people, and Peter and the rest of them. He said, you want to be great? You do the dirty work in the kingdom that nobody else wants to do. Not the showy stuff. Jesus says, that's greatness in my kingdom. Be a foot washer instead of wanting others to wash your feet. Be a servant instead of wanting others to serve you. 
Be a giver, not a taker. Be a supporter instead of a supplanter. Put everybody else ahead of you. That's path to greatness in the kingdom. Now, we can, we, can, we can fight it. We can deny it. We can close our ears to it. We can close our eyes. It doesn't change it. Just like, is baptism essential for salvation? Yes or no? Yes, no. Which is, is it? And nothing that anybody says is going to change that. Because that's what God said. It's the same thing here. This is the road to greatness. The scriptures go on to say, to, to do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Romans 12, whole chapter. For he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, 11 through 12. That's just the way it's going to be, and there's no escaping it. Do the right thing. According to God's word, for the right reason, according to God's word. Because despite how good it may seem that those who do not do the right thing always seem to have it and how they seem to skate, as Asaph soon learned, that path is simply not worth it no matter how attractive or prosperous it may seem.